Welcome to Grad Chat by PhD Balance, um, where we talk about topics beyond topics of grad school beyond the general day to day, and that may be a little bit more difficult to talk about in our everyday lives. And um, I'm your host, Linda Corcoran, and I'm a research master's student at University College Cork in Ireland. And um, if you like what you see here, make sure to like and subscribe for notifications about when we go live. Um, today, I'm very pleased to welcome our guest, Haley. We're going to be talking about making change for disabled grad students and academics. Haley is a uh, PhD student in botany at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And um, not only is being disabled incredibly difficult in the academic uh, in the academy in general, but when you add in that she's doing a, a subject that involves field work and lab work, that can be even more difficult. But um, we're here to talk about that. And not only does H is Haley here to talk about her own experiences, but she's also here to talk about the initiatives that she has founded and works on in her university that um, have been spurred by her experiences. So hi, Haley. Uh, welcome to Grad Chat. We're super happy to have you here. And um, why don't you introduce yourself a bit better? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Um, yeah, so I'm Haley, uh, Haley Branch. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I'm first just gonna give a bit of a description of myself. Uh, so I am a white woman uh, with dark brown hair. It is currently in a braid um, to one side. Um, I have um, gold glasses with white um, cat eye uh, frames. Um, and I'm wearing a kind of light seafoam kind of color t-shirt. Uh, and behind me, you can um, see a gray couch, a painting, and a cupboard, a white cupboard. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I am in going into my fifth year of my PhD. Um, so I had my comprehensive exams slash candidacy exams uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, I'm at University of British Columbia, which is where I work and learn, and it is the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. Um, and yeah, and I'm just so happy to be here today and um, talk about grad life, academia, and disability. Fantastic. Um, so I guess... Um... We should say I, I do know Haley outside of outside of grad chat. Um, she is someone that I um, have known for a while now. I think it's it's nearly a year. I think it's coming up in a couple of months. And um, we're both disabled grad students from completely different backgrounds, but and we have completely different disabilities. But um, why don't we um, start off with I guess defining disability to make sure that everyone watching knows what we are talking about. <laughs> and that's a great idea. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, disability, you know, it's incredibly diverse um, and it can include, but 
you know, it's not limited to physical disabilities, developmental, psychiatric, mental illness, sensory, cognitive, uh, learning, hearing, visual, and invisible, as well as um, self-diagnosed or undiagnosed disabilities. Um, I want to emphasize that mental health and illness is part of um, the disabled community, though sometimes it is there's a bit of disagreement about that. Um, mental health doesn't have to be a disability, but it absolutely can be. Um, and to identify as disabled is really up to the individual. Um, yeah, and I guess I imagine there are uh, a number of people that are either already tuned in or will be watching this that maybe aren't disabled um, and, you know, maybe want a little bit more background about uh, disability in general. Um, you know, the a lot of people think that the opposite of disabled is abled, so able-bodied. Um, but what it really is, is enabled. So the opposite of disabled is enabled. Um, you know, we live in a society that enables certain kinds of body minds to navigate and have access to spaces. And this chooses which types of people to include and who not to. Um, a metaphor I often like to use is, uh, imagine there's a building and you know you wanna get into this building and this building has its door 10 feet off the ground. Uh, if you're at ground level, there's no way to get to that door. If stairs are built uh, so that, you know, to, to get to the door, it's an active choice to allow access to that building for those who can use stairs. And so even people who think, you know, or, you know, are currently um, or are not disabled, they are still enabled in, in our uh, society by the choices that are made around architecture, um, social norms, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, I think that is that is a great metaphor because um, I guess when we talk about accessibility, not just in the academy, when we talk about being able to just get there, even just to undergrad, never mind to grad school and beyond, um, it's not set up at all for anyone with disabilities of any kind. And most universities have implemented maybe something at the undergrad level. Maybe they have um, accommodations for exams or classrooms. Not all of them even have that, but as soon as you get beyond that level, it gets very, very difficult to access anything. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I mean, historically, academic spaces have been created to prevent disabled folk from entering. Um, generally, academic institutions were paired with institutions for you know, the feeble-minded or for physically uh, you know, challenged individuals. They were these institutions side by side, one for um, you know, progressing the human intellect and one was to keep certain individuals out of society. Um, both of which are actually very exclusive, right? But exclusive in, in very different ways. And these institutions um, for the disabled 
community were often places of research and of subjects for the academics. Um, and so disability in academia really comes from this long line of, of violence and harm towards disabled people, um, uh, particularly using them um, exclusively as research subjects or things to be cured. Um, whereas there's not a lot of space for disabled researchers or research on just disability culture. There's still a lot of lack of that. Oh yeah, um, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's a big problem and everyone hates when I do it, but I always say the Academy is very much founded in eugenics principles and everyone hates the word eugenics and no one wants to pretend Everyone wants to pretend it's the hit, it's the past, and it's a past we don't talk about, but it's not the past. It is very much still present in what is happening today. And um, it drives so much of the attitudes and so much of the behaviors and also the research of, of everyone. And it can depend on the discipline you're in. Sometimes it can be more prevalent than others. Um, we won't get into talking about that paper that was in defense of eugenics that was published recently um, because uh, we'd probably talk about it for hours. But um, maybe let's talk a bit about your experience. Um, why did you go to choose to go to grad school? And I guess why or how did you find the transition between undergrad and grad school as a disabled person? Hey, there's a lot here. Um. <laughs> So my journey to academia, I think has been a little bit of a weird one, um, especially as someone with physical disabilities, because I originally wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. Um, and so I had actually been training to be one, um, but I progressively had more and more joint problems starting at the age of 11. Um, and so I didn't really change gears towards science until I was about 16, 17, it was a really horrible time in my life that I was having to switch from this entirely um, very different kind of um, uh, career. <laughs> um, and so when I went into undergrad, I wasn't really entirely sure what I was going to be doing. Um, I, I went into science, um, you know, I actually had to take night school and summer school and stuff because I went to a special high school for um, dancing. <laughs> and so I had to kind of, because I didn't have enough of the credits, I had to get all of that beforehand. So it's been a little bit of a weird ride. But once I was in undergrad, um, I, I thought it would be impossible to study something that made me so mad, like climate change. <laughs> but I eventually realized that I could put my energy towards that. Um, and so I, that's, um, I went into evolution and ecology to understand how the choices humans have made have affected um, the rest of the natural world. And then I went to do my, my master's um, and now obviously my PhD. But it was really when I was in my third or fourth year of undergrad that I decided I had to study desert plants. Um, I did not expect to be um, such an enthusiastic botanist, as, especially as a kid. Um, for me, I thought animals were, were where I was going to end up, but plants are my bread and butter. I love plants. 
um, I, I had the opportunity uh, to go on a field course in the Mojave Desert um, and during undergrad. And it was also in the White Mountains in California. And it was just so incredible. I was in so much pain the whole time. Um, and I could barely make it up some of like some of the hikes that we were doing. Um, and so, you know, I went really slow. I used two walking canes. Um, no one pressured me. Um, and it was just, it was just me doing it. Um, and I just, it was such an amazing experience and I absolutely loved it. Um, so then I, I transitioned to my master's and I actually had a horrible time during my master's. It was really difficult and I was afraid it was going to impact my career. Um, but my love for plants and my, you know, my, my passion for research is, you know, and I really do absolutely love academia, um, that it just kind of, that was what made me committed to continue this journey and do my PhD. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, what I, I study, I guess I'll, I'll just quickly say that a little bit. Um, so I study the, uh, the effect of drought on the evolution of of different plant populations and how they adapt to the severity of drought. And especially, you know, there are, so um, droughts are becoming progressively worse and more frequent. Um, and, you know, I could study um, deserts my whole entire life. I love deserts so much. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by how things can um, respond to stress. Perhaps it's because I'm such a stressed out person. <laughs> <laughs> that I want to understand how um, other um, organisms, other individuals, you know, especially ones that can't just get up and walk away, are able to to withstand some of these stresses, um, and and so that's kind of how I got into academia, how I got into where I am, and and really why I want to stay. Like, I really would like to um, continue on. I'm planning on doing a postdoc and then hopefully um, a professorship somewhere. The disability aspect of this obviously does make it complicated because of navigating some of those, um, those spaces. Uh, I've had to, you know, to, in the fields, you can absolutely be disabled and work in the fields. Um, you just have to have perhaps the right people working with you um, and maybe a bit of an understanding of what you need. I think when I was starting out, I didn't really know what I needed, um, but now I know that what I really need um, is to have a home base when I'm in the field I can't do long backpacking, hiking, camping, uh, field work. I can do maybe a little bit, um, but it's really not something that I can do long-term. And you know, it's really common in my field of, of studies is to have these long expeditions. Um, but for me, and you know, some people think that, you know, I've had some microaggressions around this, you know, thinking that, oh, I'm, I'm such a, a city person, or like I glamp and all of this stuff, because I, I do need a home base, I need a bed, I need a place where I can get cold ice packs, and I need a bath, I need a tub. Yep, that seems luxurious, but I need it. Um, or else I'm a 
you know, I, I, my joints start to really fall apart and it's hard to, to keep moving and doing things like that. And so I've had some serious setbacks in my PhD because I didn't have these types of accommodations. I couldn't, we didn't have the money, the finances. It all really comes back to um, universities not having the financial support for their disabled um, academics. Um, we didn't have the funds to find me a place to stay. And so I changed my entire thesis, which I really hope, you know, that that doesn't, like I really wish we can create a space where that doesn't have to happen. Um, I love what I'm studying now. Um, I, I wouldn't change it, but it was pretty heartbreaking to have to move away from doing, um, you know, what I had set out to do when I first um, yeah. came here. Like, that that can so. be that sounds like a really, I guess, um, tough decision to have to make because the supports aren't there. And um, I guess one thing I like to say, um, I don't know how many people have said it to, but I like to say to myself anyway, uh, is that the academy has got away and the entire research institution funding has got away with paying people so little. And that can also affect disabled people, but we won't get into that part of it yet. Um, it has got away with basically, I guess, half-assing training people and making things accessible for people. It's finding the cheapest way to do it, the person who will do it for the least amount of money and who will work the longest hours. That is how the academy was formed and still kind of works. And just because it, it's functioning that way doesn't mean that it should function that way. And it's very much keeping disabled people out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the economics of the university and the, the lack of the funding for disabled students across, like students and, and academics, like the faculty members, you know, it's quite shocking. Um, it is. And it's, it's very reactive. It's they don't um, figure out what needs to happen until a disabled person gets there. And that's lucky. And then they're lucky if they get there, because most of the time, if they find out that you have disabilities, they obviously say that they don't discriminate, but they use other words like you don't fit the culture here. Yeah. You um, because their labs aren't weren't built accessibly. They were built for abled people. They were built for, and that can be able-bodied. That could be um, things that it built in a manner where people who can't stand for an entirety of an experiment at a fume hood can't work there. People mm -hmm. who have sensory sensitivities can't function there because there's too many beeping machines in a small space. And there's so many different inaccessibilities in labs themselves and in the way that people do field work and the risks that people take more so that um, I guess an able person can take mm -hmm. um, because they don't have to think about other things. And um, it can really, really affect the way that disabled people can access it. And even when they do reactively give something, they act like you should basically give them an award for allowing you to access something. And yeah. if what they've given 
you doesn't work for purpose, you're out of luck. The other, other thing with any type of, um, if you've ever looked at accommodations and you look at, you know, how to apply for it across the board, it always says um, within reason. And who decides what is within reason? Not the disabled community, not the people who need it. It's, it is people who are looking at, um, you know, how can we minimize the amount that we're spending while still making some kind of an accommodation? Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's quite upsetting. Um, Oh, it is. It's, it's definitely, um, I think in, in Ireland, it's um, phrased as reasonable accommodations. Yeah. And it's, um, it is decided by able people who yeah. what reasonable accommodations are. And it leads professors to go, oh, well, you know, if the accommodations or if you can't function in the lab, the field work with this uh, module structure, the way that it is laid out, you obviously shouldn't be here. You're just being lazy. All of these things that we have to hear. Um, sorry, you're supposed to be the guest and I'm ranting. Um, let's good. go it's back good. to it's your conversation. Experience. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, you know, I have a lot of opinions about this, but oh, um, let's good. talk about you. <laughs> um, no, so, I think, I think the accommodation stuff, I, I, I'm happy to have um, more of a dialogue. I don't, I have only one perspective, so. Um, so I guess um, you have worked on a number of initiatives or I guess because of your experience in the Academy. So do you wanna talk a bit about that and what you have done, are doing, would like to do in the future? Let's start with have done. <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, so what have I done? Um, uh, so I guess the first kind of thing that I started at my university um, was more um, mental health, mental well-being oriented, which, as I already mentioned, is still um, within the, the disability sphere. Um, and so within my department, two kind of departments, it's botany and zoology, because they have so much in overlapping um, uh, questions. Um, I created a wellness initiative that has had a lot of success. And I think a big, a big part of that is that it's, it's student run, but we have included faculty on it and not just research faculty, but teaching faculty and staff um, and postdocs. Um, the, the reason for that is because A lot, I find that a lot of these things are kind of done in isolation, but as a community of, you know, if it's your whole department, you need to really foster um, the importance of doing something to improve well-being um, that isn't in, a, in, in an isolated manner. Um, the other thing too, is that I just noticed that in general, uh, universities have very little resources for graduate students. Um, mental well-being, all of the programming is pretty much geared towards the undergrad population. Um, and so I, I didn't think that that was uh, really a, appropriate since 
we know um, the proportion of graduate students that you know are you know do struggle with mental health issues and um as part of this i have now been working with a couple um, of other graduate students one in philosophy and, and one in uh, sociology and we're trying to create a, a cross campus equitable well-being initiative um, where we take into account uh, intersecting intersectional identities uh, in relation to mental well-being um, because i think in some ways um, some mental health programming has been in a way kind of whitewashed and doesn't really um, go into trauma uh, and violence that is experienced by marginalized groups. Um, and Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 100% agree. It's um, <laughs> there's there's so much research on minority stress as an effector of mental health. And yet when it comes to academia, they're just like, yeah, the the white narrative, the cis mm -hmm. narrative, the straight abled narrative and nothing else. Exactly. Um, and so we're trying to really push for that. We've had some, um, you know, it's, it's been taking a bit of time, but I'm really optimistic about something getting implemented. Um, I think the pilot is, is going to be for 15 different departments across campus, which is awesome. And I hope that other universities uh, might follow suit. Um, that's amazing. I I like, let's just take a second to be like 15 departments across the campus. Yeah, it's really exciting. <laughs> Sorry, but like, I, I'm like, what? I can't get my department to do anything. One department. <laughs> That's so amazing. Yeah, I, 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 I hope it, it, it goes through. And, you know, if not, then I've still been trying to develop um, a kind of like handbook type thing that can be um, hand, like given out to departments across my campus on ways to kind of approach these issues, create your own initiatives, because it is a lot of work and everyone's just kind of reinventing the same things. And it, it leads to us not really getting anywhere. So it's best if we can all just work together. Um, I have also, um, I guess last year, I started the Disabled Graduate Student Association at my university and, and across both campuses. So um, at UBC, there's a Vancouver campus and then Okanagan campus. So we, and they're kind of far, they're pretty far apart. They're technically, I think like six hour drive away from each other. So they're, <laughs> yeah. That um, is such a long thing. I, I don't think is my entire country six hours long? Maybe, maybe the entirety of the country. Uh, <laughs> you go around in a circle and it, um, yeah, I know this is, and this is just within one province. Canada is big. Um, and um, yeah, we're, we're still very new. Um, generally what I've found is that any type of initiative within the first like year and a half, there's very little um, that, really gets done you need that momentum and a little bit more um uh i don't know dialogue with with the institution before you can really get further along um but we've got some really awesome things um 
that are that are already kind of fermenting, I guess. <laughs> That's, I don't That's know why I chose that term. But. <laughs> I mean, it's totally good. It's it it's in progress. It's it's work. You're working on it, and it's, yeah. I mean, the biggest great. thing that that we're working on, um, and this is um, uh, Corin. Corin, um, you might know Tweety Mutant, um, is part of this group, and um, he's pushing really for. Um, uh, getting more funding. So as we already mentioned, funding is so precarious for graduate um, students that are disabled. Um, I mean, it's precarious for everyone. It is especially precarious for disabled graduate students because we take longer. Um, it's, it's also just like, um, and I think it was someone in the UK brought up this point on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and it's like, how many um, PIs put extra money in in their grants for if a student is disabled, for if a student requires adaptive equipment, for if a student requires mm -hmm. extra funding to travel to a conference. And obviously that depends on where you are in the world because some, some country grants do include funding for conferences and that thing, sort of thing and some don't, but PIs don't do that because yeah. they don't expect disabled people to be there. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard to say whether um, funds from a grant would even support something like that. A lot of the time it's expected that it will come from the institution itself, but we don't really have much in, in, in a way there either, um, especially for the types of things that disabled grad students might need. Um, we're, we're not, um, we don't necessarily need longer time for exams. Many of us don't even have exams. Uh, we don't necessarily need, um, you know, note takers in a class. Cause again, maybe we don't even take classes. Like the types of, I know those are two just very simple examples of accommodations. There's others like assistive devices, like dragon speak, speech, speak, uh, I forget. Okay. Um, and these types of things that are expensive that can be um, uh, provided from universities, but these don't necessarily help with the grad studies stuff, right? Because I mean, for instance, for me, I could be in the lab, uh, I might need to be in the lab for 10 hours a day sometimes, right? Um, and often that's the case because I don't have another pair of hands and I'm, I might be a little slower or, um, my, uh, so something that we've talked a lot about um, is, you know, so one, one, one aspect of being a disabled graduate student is that you might take longer. And so funding runs out if you had funding to begin with. Um, and then, it, you know, it either weeds out um, disabled students faster because they either can't afford to even be in school anymore, or they are in a privileged state where they have support, um, perhaps from parents or something. Um, and then so we're, we're already like filtering out who gets to stay. The other, the other aspect of that is that if, if you're in a type of degree like mine where you can't extend it because I work with plants, they live for like 20 weeks and then they're done. I can't really, they dictate my degree <laughs> they 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 pretty much I, i'm at their 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 disposal really um 
And so for me, it's not extended time. It's I need an assistant. I need someone there that can be working with me who is essentially like a lab tech. But, you know, I, I have been successful in getting grants and things like that. But, you know, they say that that's for research. And research, for some reason, does not include labor. Um, and so we're really trying to make this push that there should be grants that are more available for different kinds of accommodations that a grad student might need. Um, and I really do think that even just like agencies and other funding like um, organizations and stuff um, or societies, they should be thinking a bit more about who they're excluding um, from doing research when they say labor can't be used. Um, this isn't this is tangential to, to disability because this is more of social socioeconomic um, point. But in my field, you know, there are really expensive types of research you can do. Like if you're going to do, um, you know, genome-wide association, um, like sequencing and things like that. Like that, any kind of genomics work is expensive. Um, then there's the other part of my field that does. Um, you know, you, you might do more like phenotype type work where you are counting number of flowers, um, length of the plant, these certain things which don't require a lot of funds to do, but perhaps you need to sample thousands of plants. And so what you really need is help with the work. And so this issue of funding not all um, being allowed for uh, labor and getting assistance um, really is detrimental to disabled scholars and to uh, scholars uh, with lower economic status. Um, and so again, we're perpetuating this able-bodied, more um, wealthy kind of researchers, which is really upsetting. Absolutely. It is, it's very upsetting. It's just like, Stop the gatekeeping, please. And yeah. it's, you know, it's when, when we talk about disability, like there are, we all know there are, there are EDI grants that are coming mm -hmm. up, which is great, but so many of them don't include disability. So many yeah. of them don't, don't think it's, it's a, it's a minority group. It's a not counted as diversity, getting accessibility for disability is not counted as inclusion. It's just really frustrating. And it, it, it does impact people who are, who have more than one minority identity because mm -hmm. the disability community is so diverse and so massive that usually they also have other marginalized identities as well. And yes, I, I know I'm a white person, but, um, and, you know, um, especially, obviously it's disability dependent, but indigenous people, black people, and it tend to be the most discriminated against in disability community. They tend to be the less believed. They tend to get misdiagnosed more. It's their attitude is seen that they are being they're perceived, well, uh, to be honest, most disabilities are perceived at some point as being lazy, um, yeah. but they tend to get it more. They get it more often, they get there quicker. And it's, 
it's really frustrating. It's so frustrating. Yep, absolutely. Um, but I guess um, one of your roles is that you are working with the, did you say the Diversity and Inclusion Office? Yes, uh, so I'm actually working with the Equity, Equity and Inclusion Office at my university. Um, and so in addition to my thesis work, I am also doing a research um, project on equitable assessment of scholars with disabilities. So um, uh, I've been working with the Canada Research Chair Program. And so that's who has funded this research. Um, essentially, um, the Canada Research Chair Program is trying to um, increase the representation and the diversity of their shareholders uh, and uh, a group that has, uh, even with certain preferential hiring processes and targeted hiring, um, disabled scholars have still fallen through the cracks. And so I've been kind of part of this task force trying to figure out, okay, why is this happening? I mean, we know in general why this is happening, um, but what are some ways that we can fix this? Um, and so of course, there's a lot of discussion about how we need to address the systemic ableism in institutions. Um, but there are also some you know, ideas of uh, ways that you can assess a CV. Since CVs and what productivity looks like can be quite different. Um, and that, yeah, so some of the things that have come up is that collaboration perhaps is more common um, in disabled groups um, because, you know, uh, it means each chunk of the work gets, uh, you know, each person has a little bit less of that work to do um, rather than having, you know, a lot of sole first author papers, like sole author papers. Um, and this often, when you're looking at uh, faculty members, can be seen as you know a negative rather than positive of, of building collaboration, potentially international collaborations, um, having more perspective and viewpoints, which increases our scholarship, makes our scholarship better. Um, and so, trying to change some of those metrics a bit of like why is it actually important to have collaboration, um, and then emphasizing the importance of um, of outside work that's being done um, in in your community, um, either within academia or not, uh, and how you know this type of public, either public scholarship, public community work is also valid and important. Um, you know, especially there's been a lot of discussion, you know, recently about how. Um, there's, there's been, a, especially in the media, like kind of a shift in how um, the academy is viewed and, and not really necessarily listening to experts. And so having scholars actually in the community outreach just like and working uh, is actually extremely valuable and important for academia um, in the long run. Um, rather than you know being these isolated academics, um, it's that's actually become we've seen has become more and more harmful. Um, 
And so just, yeah, trying to shift these ideas of what productivity looks like, um, how to evaluate it. Um, you know, someone brought up an interesting thing about um, uh, looking at metrics of, of contributions relative to opportunity, because um, some people have had a lot more opportunities. And so how do we actually distinguish between, oh, well, let's like a basic example is you've applied for 20 grants and you received two versus you've applied for five and you've received one. How do like there, and, and that's a big one because of, um, especially if you have a disability of any type of fatigue, uh, that you might not have enough time, um, energy to apply for 20 grants um, that your other colleagues who do have that type of energy can. Um, and so it, it's, yeah, there's been a lot of dialogue about how can we create these equitable assessments? How does that look? What does that look like? How do we do it? Um, and so that will be made public in September, that report. So stay tuned. <laughs> That's so cool. I can't wait to read it. Like, honestly, any, any extra report, any extra publication that comes out about disability, I'm always like, oh, this is great because in the Academy in science especially they don't care unless you have your publications if you can bring up and bring up a list of publications it doesn't matter what they are to them really if they're there it counts as a point yeah absolutely um I think we are nearly out of time but is there anything else that you want to touch on before we finish this live stream I guess we didn't talk about some of like just some of the discriminations that uh instances i experienced i don't know if we want to talk a little bit about those or if that's just Definitely. something people can reach out to me about um yeah do you want to maybe talk about it in short even though that's such an important topic um yeah let's, let's yeah. touch on it a little bit <laughs> yeah um so i guess a big one is that like before um, being diagnosed for like myself that there's a lot of struggle with professors really understanding what I needed or not necessarily giving me any support um, because I wasn't diagnosed. Um, a big push I think that needs to be done is with doctors because doctors don't understand the power they have in disabled lives as much as maybe we don't necessarily want them to. <laughs> they really dictate a lot about what we can have access to. Uh, I think a big thing um, because accommodations require doctor's notes and stuff is to realize that even if you're not entirely sure, a doctor should be allowed to just say like, there's something wrong, we're not sure yet, but yes, they're disabled. Um, and I think that would be like, that doesn't cost them anything and it would help us so much. Um, there's also, I guess sometimes like I've, I've had some issues with, um, you know, accessibility and accommodations when I've taught courses because there's this whole distinction between when you're a student versus staff and accommodations do not, they like the services don't overlap at all. Um, and so I'm someone you can already see, I move my hands a lot. Um, I need to be doing something with my hands. And so I've been penalized by instructors before um, while I've taught for, for, you know, saying that, that, you know, I choose to knit or crochet when I teach. Um, and that's because it actually keeps um, me more concentrated on teaching um, because my hands can just do something else. Um, and I don't do it like I'm just like out in front. Like I usually do it like kind of underneath the desk or something so that it's not distracting for other students. 
Um, but I have been penalized and said that I'm an inattentive TA, not by students, by instructors. Um, you know, and it's kind of weird because I'm there fully engaged, um, whereas, you know, I, you know, other options that would be deemed um, okay is if I was on my computer, like doing R code, which would mean that I'm completely engaged in my computer. But for some reason, that seems as okay. Um, yeah, I guess I've also had some issues with mo mo some of my mobility and because I don't walk around the classroom. Um, I've also been been called out um, in evaluations of like not being again attentive to the students, whereas like all my students have been totally happy with coming up to me and asking the questions. Um, it's so ridiculous. It's it's so ridiculous. I I I hate the way that that we evaluate teaching. That we evaluate um, like a lot of universities are putting in universal design learning, which is great. You need to do that, yeah. but. <laughs> You need to go past it because universal design learning only benefits the students. Yeah, exactly. There, there's no talk about how to make teaching like uh, um, teaching accessible. It's all about the students. And sometimes actually some of the accommodations can like, we know that because disability is so diverse that some accommodations actually are, you know, are good for one, but harm the other. And so like, you need to have this good proper dialogue between students and faculty that are disabled and figuring out what's best for everybody. And, and I'm sure that you can always figure out what to do, but there needs to actually be some kind of centralized place to sort these types of things out. And, and it, it's upsetting that it's you know students, faculty, staff, like, no, we're all a community working together and we need to, <laughs> to make sure that it works. Sorry, I said all of that really fast <laughs> because I wanted to make sure some of that got in. No, um, it's, it's it's so, so important. And um, I can't believe that we got the whole chat with that talking about discrimination because it is. It <laughs> there's is a such, lot to unpack there. Yeah, there is. And there's there's so many different things, like even just the frustrated size of people when you go like you haven't provided captions. I, I can't follow what's going on why like I I've had people literally like every time I'm like you need to make this event accessible and every time we're coming back to preparing another event it's still not accessible and I'm like at some point this is on you you need to start with something you need to take what I'm saying and improve the way that you structure things, the way that you start things, because it's not just me. I'm just the one who's talking about it because I'm a loud mouth. But um, <laughs> um, yes, okay. I, I think we're definitely out of time, we're but done. thank yes. you. Thank you so much. So, so much, Haley, for being an amazing guest. And I know you have so much more to say. If we had hours, we would be able to talk for hours. But um, for people who would like to talk or find out more about Haley's experiences, her initiatives that she is working on, all of her projects, definitely reach out to her because she is an amazing person. Um, if you liked what you see here, make sure to 
like and subscribe to the PhD Balance YouTube channel or to our podcast series, depending on where you are. So this has been Grad Chat by PhD Balance. We go live every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. And um, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you next time. (laughs) Bye.